My name is Caroline Garnham from Boutique Law Firm Garnham Family Office Services. We protect and preserve the wealth of the world's rich and famous. But having a good lawyer is only part of the solution. My podcast, How to Keep Your Money, draws on my 30 years experience and my extensive network of professional advisors to better inform you. Subscribe to our podcast and learn from the professionals on how to keep your money. This is episode two of How to Keep Your Money, 100 years of responsibility on your shoulders. I'm joined in the studio by Alex Scott, who has the weight of 100 years upon his shoulders. His great-grandfather started provincial insurance in 1903, which was then sold in 1996 when Alex set up Sandair to manage the proceeds. Now Sandair is one of the top 50 multi-family offices in the world. I'm talking to Alex Scott about the highs and lows of his success story, Sandair. Alex, thank you for coming in today. Uh, your great-grandfather, Sir James Scott, set up Provincial Insurance in 1903. It was a very successful insurance business with annual turnover of 350 millions. In 1996, the family sold Provincial. You set up Sandair to manage the sale proceeds of the family. Was this a tough decision? It was an enormously tough decision. I had just got involved um, as a non-executive chairman uh, and I thought it was going to be an extraordinary opportunity to be working with colleagues in the financial services business. We had an insurance company, we had a small bank, uh, we, we had had an asset management company uh, and we had a direct writing insurance company. So there were lots of interesting facets to that. We had overseas representation as well and yet as I got involved, it became increasingly obvious that that sector was going through very significant change. Um, for example, the European Union was changing its rules allowing cross-border insurance. Direct writing, remember this is before the internet, where the, the red telephone was, uh, direct line, was beginning to, to eat into the, the consumer market. Um, also, the insurance sector was beginning to be more and more volatile in the returns that it delivered. Uh, and if you equate that to risk, then what was happening was the sector was changing, therefore the risks were increasing to us. And as a family with all our wealth, or the great majority of our wealth in one company and one share, it was a time when we had to consider very carefully whether we thought we were going to be rewarded for that enormous risk we were carrying. Now, I didn't want to reach that conclusion because I just got involved and I thought it was going to be a really interesting future and I was very excited by that. But actually, as I reflected on my responsibilities to my wider family, and I'm a member of the fourth generation and there's quite a lot of us, it quickly became apparent that the, the emotional issues of parting with the family company had to be dealt with because there was a strong rational argument to say that it was time for the company and the family to part. And our view was 
that the family would probably have a better future without the company and vice versa. So it was a rational thing to do, but it was really difficult. I didn't expect or want to do that, but it was clear to me that that was my responsibility as somebody who had been put in a position of influence with regard to the family's company and the family's assets. So really tough. And then you set up Sander. Um, they were yeah. happy to appoint Sander to manage the money. Well, that was part of the deal, I suppose. We wouldn't have set Sander up if the family hadn't been supported. But I suppose, you know, what? so so we, we then sat down and, and, and the, the critical thing were, there was that as a family, we had made a strategic exit. And if you make a strategic exit, you've done it as part of a coherent plan and dialogue and decision. So you haven't fractured relationships in doing that. So you, you're more likely to have the capacity to be able to collaborate and cooperate. And I sat down with my cousins and said, um, look, we have an opportunity. If we recognize that there's a difference between being owners of a family business and being a family in business. They sound the same, but they're very different. If you're a family in business, it gives you license to move on and do different things. And if you're a family in business, you can stay together and you can stay in business together. But what we need to recognize is we're at a different stage in our evolution. We need to change the risks associated with our businesses because the risk profile of a bigger family is lower than a small family. We become a big family. So we need to find the means of investing in a way that was representative of a fourth generation family rather than a first generation family, which means moving from investment in one company to multiple companies. So that was the, that was the decision in the first place. And the second piece was, okay, now we've made that decision to stay together and invest. How do we do it? So, because we come from financial services, we'd seen the sort of the good, the bad, and the indifferent as part of that. And what I realized was that, first of all, I'd read all the research, which is still the same research, which says that you must focus on asset allocation as a family over anything else, because that will be the determinant of your long-term returns. And secondly, having done that, you want to access the best talent that you can, talent wherever it is in the world, because they will the people, be the people who actually deploy your assets. And that's now called open architecture, the capacity to access managers wherever they are. So my task was to find an organization that could deliver that to us. And in 1996 in London, there wasn't one. So I, I, I had a look at what was going on in the States because that was more evolved as a, as a family office market. And I saw that that model would be appropriate for us. The, this, this thing called a family office, I didn't know what a family office was. And, you know, I was at the right age and the right evolution of my career that I thought that it would be an interesting thing to see if we could develop that working on the foundations of my own family and 2,000 employee shareholders who, we, who were part of the, the exit uh, to build something that might subsequently be a business that was working for other families as well. I'm not sure I answered your question there. but Yes, you have, because I'm just about to go on to say... You were the first multi-family office in the UK. You're now the top 50 multi-family offices in the world. Um, what inspired you to open your doors to other families and what were the risks without giving any confidence? Yeah, well, I think it was, um, I think the pragmatic rationale was that if we could create a business that had more than one sources of income, i.e. multiple clients, 
if we can create a business that's got momentum and is growing, and if we can create a business that uh, has a strategy, then I felt that we would, a strategy for growth over and above investment management, then I felt that it would be a pretty interesting career in life for me. There's a selfish bit. But I also thought um, that we would be able to attract and retain really good talent uh, as an organization that would not only look after us, but look after our other clients as well. So there's a degree there of saying, this is an interesting thing, let's try it. There was a degree there of being a family in business. This is, a, this is our new business, let's see if we can grow this. Uh, and I think um, I, I also saw the examples in the USA of family offices that had been successful. So I thought we'd, we'd give it a go. It was an entrepreneurial leap into the dark. Well, you've done something, right? Um, you say, Alex, get the governance right and it delivers the greatest gift of all time. There's lots, governance means lots of different things to different people. To me, it means, as a lawyer, lots of words with checks and balances. What does it mean to you? I think it means two things. I would put it, first of all, let's talk about governance in the company sense, first of all. I think in a family company, uh, you've got to be careful that as the generations go on, the family isn't over-dominant. So the family is the provider of capital and sometimes provider of talent. But as but in terms of the evolution of the business, it's really important to have external directors in the form of governance. In our own case, we've very often been in the minority on boards of directors. We're there as owners and we're there as, uh, as long-term owners of the business. So, so governance of a company is really important and I think reliance on great external directors has given us huge benefit. The, the benefit of governance in a family uh, and its capacity to deliver time to that family I think is based on my belief that particularly as a family gets larger there's a propensity to be I suppose it sounds like a negative, but the over, or it sounds like a positive, over-individualistic. But if you are and you don't have a sense of purpose and direction, then it'll end up being probably anarchic. And if you are anarchic and you're not focused and you don't have a sense of direction, it'd be very difficult to maintain the family as a coherent operating group. So if you put governance in there, if you put rules around the way you operate, if you involve people in positions of responsibility, not only do you engage wider members of the family, but also you can give it a sense of purpose and direction. If you have a sense of purpose and direction, it enables members of that family to get on with other things, mm. not have to focus on, you know, they don't have, have to have multiple banking relationships, they don't have to have multiple professional relationships. If there's a, if there's a core and there's something at the centre that is doing all that for them and they've delegated that to them, then they do have time to go on and do other things and live fulfilling lives. Because for most of them, I'm not just talking about my family, for, for most of the, of the uh, wealthy people I know, wealth isn't the centre of their being. They, they do other things. They want to do other things, and they're good at doing other things. So finding a means, putting governance in place to enable all this to work for them can be, can be liberating. I note that from this year, 2019, you've expanded your services quite considerably. Uh, private equity, real estate, corporate finance. 
But you also recognise that you have to have a network because they don't cover all the services. Yeah. Um, when recommending other professionals to your clients, what do you look for and what are the challenges? Well, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, I think the first thing, if it's other professionals, there's, there's an implicit requirement for expertise, um, which can be hard to assess. So you have to go on repute and referrals. That's the first check. Are they, are they good at what they do? Um, the second, and just as important, is the demeanor, of the personality, the empathy of the individual's concern. And I say that because I think it's, it's the determinant of the quality of the relationship will be the, the quality of the relationship with the individuals, the quality of the meetings, the quality of the conversations, the capacity of the advisor to give good advice will be based upon their knowledge of the individual. If there isn't a degree of empathy, if there isn't a degree of connection between those people, then it will only work at a fraction of the rate or the, 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 the effectiveness that it might do. So I think it's a mix of professional professionalism, yes, that's got to be there, but then what are they like? What are the people I'm talking to like? And what are the advisors like? And and we all know, you know, there are some people we like and some people we don't like. There are some people who like me, some people who don't like me. But but finding that 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 fit is is difficult, which is why in looking for any service, I think, any professional service, people should meet two or three people. Even if even if it's very hard to 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 determine the quality of their professional skills, you'll get a sense of whether you want to spend time with this person in meetings. And I would say that's probably the determinant of whether you think you made a good choice or not. Do you ever take out references? Yes. Um, on people and on businesses. And if there's one strong lesson in my life is you can't take up enough references. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to dig and dig and dig. And, and um, I, I think um, if, I had, if I had more time, if I, if I could revisit some situations, I, I, I'd spend more time on references. Mm. Yeah, I think they're really important. Good. Um, in my introductory podcast, what, it's, what it is like to be rich... I talk about the need to avoid losses because once losses are made, it's very difficult to make them up and it's very difficult to keep up the returns, etc. Um, most families have lost their fortune by the third generation, but you are now well into the fourth generation. Um, what do you think has, has, tell me a bit about this and what has been the secret of your success? Well, I'd start with good luck. I think that it would be wrong to assume that we haven't avoided significant loss over periods of time were it not for good fortune and good management. I think those two things come hand in hand. So when you have an operating company, and as I said before, when you have one company, one stock, that's all your wealth involved in one company, um, you are exposed to losses and they may come, markets may change things you can't control. So that's that's the that's the uncontrollable. I think once you have reached the situation as we have, whereby we have now got a, a portfolio of multiple trading and investment assets, then there are two things that I would say. One is that uh, 
everything you do needs to be based around this awful word, but very necessary word, diversification, having multiple eggs and multiple baskets, because things will still go wrong. Uh, and when they go wrong, you want them not to be overly, overly damaging. I think the other thing is that, that I suspect when you look at the, the reality that, that so many fortunes are dissipated, it's as much to do with external influences, i.e. things that happen to them, as it is to do with things that they have done themselves. And what I mean by that is I think there can be behaviours which can be destructive to wealth. The simple one is spending more than you have. Uh, but there are other things, of, of other elements of taking bad advice, taking risks that are inappropriate. Um, it, it becomes a, a process, I think, over multiple generations of externally perhaps being a bit dull because you're, you're continually weighing up one risk against another risk and your job is to is to ensure that you're not taking inappropriate risks. You must still take risks because if you want to be a good steward, that's not about just maintaining, it's about growth as well. In order to grow, you need to take risks. So so I think that, that, that so I say, I think there, there are some risks you can't avoid, which, which lead to losses. There are some risks that might be as a result of behaving inappropriate in the context of your wealth and some risks that you should try and diversify away, but you can't avoid them altogether. Mm. And I think that, that, that you know, we're always a few mistakes away from seeing certainly an impact on our wealth because of bad mistakes uh, and bad decisions. What you've got to make sure is that if you do make a bad decision, it's not so fundamental that it's the end of the story. But you haven't been involved, I mean, this comes back to the governance and, and you know, you're a pioneer in the governance so that you haven't had major family disputes that have destroyed the family wealth. Tell me, how did you learn about uh, governance? Because I mean, I'm a governance lawyer, um, been doing it for 20 years, but, but it's a different thing being in a business. Can you, how did you learn to pick up all of that stuff? I think two things. I guess I'm a, I'm a, I'm a student of family business. Um, I have a bookshelf or several bookshelves in the office laden with books on family businesses and best practice in family businesses. And I, I think I've read all of them, or most of them anyway. Um, I, I think one of the things that I've, I've, I've learned by doing, um, I've also been involved for over 20 years in the family business network movement. The family business network is a collection of family businesses on a global basis. Uh, who gather together to learn and share best practice about the family governance dynamic, ensuring that one is an effective asset to a business. And I've learned a huge amount through that. So I've, I've sort of learned by doing and reading and studying and thinking, um, and and by experience. I think that, that there is an element also of um, recognising that when one's part of a collective, as a family investment company is, that one has to be conscious of that. And, and, and 
and be a be a good citizen of that family, which means which means I hope not making decisions or taking risks that are inappropriate in the context of that family. Thank you. The business has evolved over the last twenty years, and with the twenty families, more than twenty families that you look after. Tell me a little bit how about that journey over those last twenty plus years. Well, in some ways, it's been remarkably coherent in that what we set out to do over 20 years ago is what we're doing now. I think what has happened is that the market in which we operate has changed very substantially. There have been big external forces which have changed wealthy families' attitude to risk and wealth management. Some of us can remember the dot-com bubble bursting. Um, that was a pretty extraordinary experience when it was a big education for families of wealth about the, about the value of diversification. We, we probably didn't even think very much, or families didn't think very much about the difference between growth stocks and value stocks in those days. Um, but goodness, those who were focused only on dot-com businesses when the dot-com bubble burst suffered tremendous losses. So those external, and of course the, the global financial crisis, exposed many of the issues that were, that were challenging within banks and their delivery of services to their customers. So I think the external market has changed quite a lot to our advantage because what we have been able to do is show there is a viable and interesting option to the traditional suppliers of banking services. The other thing that's changed, of course, is that the the number of investment options, the things we might do for families, the assets they might want to invest in, have exploded exponentially. There's been an exodus of talent into into minor boutique firms who've grown to be very big. There's been there's been a proliferation of uh, investment vehicles, and so the capacity of any investment advisor, including ourselves. To be able to provide a full palette of opportunities, a full menu of opportunities to customers has been has been really important. So things have evolved. The, the, the market has got more complex uh, and more interesting. We're in a we're in an era now where values based investing is coming to the fore. That's really fascinating. Where I think for the first time, families can begin to invest according to their values, not according to the returns that they're seeking or a mixture of returns and values. It's really fascinating. Actually. Though, coming back to how things have evolved, the business is doing the same thing. It's focusing on asset management, it's focusing on being uh, empathetic with families and the challenges that they have in living with their wealth and, and, and seeking to facilitate their success in that context. Well done, well done. Alex, you say quite a lot that you see yourself as the steward of the family wealth which you say is a weight to bear, but one which brings with it an immense amount of privilege to have the opportunity to shoulder. This burden and privilege, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that the capacity to respond to one's good fortune, let's say if you're an, if you're an, if you're an inheritor, then if, as I do, you take that good fortune seriously, then you don't want to be the generation that screws up because most families there will be one. So 
That's the burden and responsibility, is let's do the rational, sensible thing with this. Let's do it in a way that is, that is objectively right. Um, but there's also a privilege, because you're in a position of privilege in the first place, and if you can crystallise that good fortune, and if you can capitalise on that, then it gives you, I think, quite a fulfilling way to, to lead your life. It gives you a degree of freedom to, to operate as you might in your society without some of the constraints that others have. And I think this issue of stewardship is, is really, really important because it's, it's part of our job as inheritors to preserve what we have inherited and make it better if we can, but also to grow it. So you're given the license to go out and do interesting things and, exper and experiment things, given that you've got the risk profile right, you're, you're not taking too great a risk. And I think that's a, that, that can be a really interesting career profession. I think it's, it's, it's partly vocational. Um, but it's also quite burdensome because anybody fulfilling this role uh, and is a member of the family as I am, you know, you're looking after your parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, nieces, nephews, etc. Uh, that's quite a burden too. Mm. Um, you need to be confident that you're you're doing the right thing. And lastly, um, as we all know, uh, families grow, um, and as they grow, there's less wealth to go around. How do you go about managing the expectations that the next generation may not be able to have quite so much spending capacity as the older generation? Because um, that's quite a quite a difficult lesson to teach kids. Yeah, I, I, I think it's the first question you've asked me that I don't really have an answer to. Uh, I, I think um, I, it's got to be a degree of parental example. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the reality is, is that your family tree is likely to grow faster than your wealth. Therefore, by definition, as money flows down the generations, you're not going to have the lifestyle of your predecessors unless you go out and make that capital yourself. So I hope it's a degree of realism and a degree of responsibility and maturity. It doesn't necessarily happen that way, but I think that is part of the, the, the comprehension that, that thoughtful inheritors have. And goodness, isn't it a privilege to inherit anything? Um, be, it, be it capital, be it stories, be it skills, be it intellect, whatever it is, we're, we're, we're fortunate that those elements are, are part of us and part of the, the opportunities that we have. So my view is be, be humble about that and celebrate it and make the most of what you're given. It's been a real joy to speak to you, Alex. Thank you very much for coming into the studio and talking to us and sharing us some of your privileges and burdens, and I wish you every success with Sandair. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have heard how Alex and his family have preserved wealth beyond three generations with good governance and good management. Please subscribe to our podcasts to listen to more interviews with leading experts in the private client industry about how to keep your money. Thank you.